From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In southern Colorado, in the San Luis Valley, and in northern, in North Park, the federal government will invest millions to restore wetlands. We're going to ensure that the unbelievable number of birds and wildlife and fish that use that place will continue to be able to do so for decades to come. The head of the Bureau of Land Management joins us. Tracy Stone Manning also discusses a public lands rule that's drawing opposition and the BLM's yo-yo presence in Grand Junction. Then outgoing mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers, on the political divide, growth, and unexpected opportunities from the pandemic. We benefited in the post-pandemic world because microchip businesses are are onshoring and coming back to Cairo Springs, and we're returning to our roots as Silicon Mountain. One of the easiest ways to support Colorado Public Radio is to become an Evergreen member. As an Evergreen member, you give a little bit each month, and your contribution renews automatically each year. You don't have to remember when it's time to renew your membership and benefits Stay current. Give $5, 10 or $20 a month. Become an Evergreen member securely online at CPR.org or call 1-800-496-1530. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Look out at some of Colorado's most stunning places, and there's a good chance that land is held by the Bureau of Land Management. Well, that agency just announced it'll invest $160 million in what it calls restoration landscapes. The idea is to help public lands across the West withstand new and growing challenges like invasive species and climate change. Think wildfires. Colorado gets $5 million for North Park near Walden and just over $6 million for the San Luis Valley. The BLM's director is Tracy Stone Manning, and thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. You visited both these spots last week. What stood out about each one? Water. The San Luis Valley, uh, we went to the Blanca wetlands. It was incredible, so full of bird life. I'm a lifelong, not so great, but love it birder. And just standing there hearing about the projects, um, we were surrounded by so many species of birds. And there in North Park, similarly, you know, a place that has among the largest wetland complexes in the state, there was water everywhere, uh, which is such a precious asset and something that we have to make sure stays on the landscape. These are funds through the Inflation Reduction Act. How will the investments change, I don't know, what people see or experience there in the future or or what wildlife experiences? So uh, let's take North Park. We're going to invest funds in North Park to ensure that those wetlands stay wet, ensure that the creeks and rivers are connected to the landscape. And when that happens, when creeks and rivers can do their things and flow out of their banks, we create riparian wetlands. And what those wetlands do for us is store water. So longer into the season, there'll be water on the landscape, um, which is, you know, so important as the future portends to be drier and drier. So the operative term here, I think, is restoration landscapes. This is not refashioning the land in some newfangled way. It's a return to what once was, I guess. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, nature is the planet's very best engineer. 
And if we can uh, give nature a hand in sometimes very unobtrusive ways with just a little bit of investment, nature can take over and do the rest. Of the 8 million or so acres the BLM manages in Colorado, why were these two particular places selected? For a couple of reasons. We have places that people are already doing good work together, and that good work can be, you know, leveraged and made deeper. And then there's just a, there's a need, North Park, not only for the wetlands, but for the really remarkable population of sage-grouse that's on the ground. I was looking at a field that has 200 birds, sage-grouse in it in the winter. We need to make sure that we maintain that habitat so that those birds can maintain their stronghold there. And in the San Luis Valley, the wetlands that we were visiting are created with infrastructure that's really old and needs some help. And if we invest in that infrastructure today, we're going to ensure that the unbelievable number of birds and wildlife and fish that use that place will continue to be able to do so for decades to come. So I hear you saying this is a matter of need. It's also a matter of buy-in on the ground from the communities that care about these places. That's exactly, exactly right. I want to note that the U.S. Supreme Court has just dealt a blow to WOTUS. Uh, that's the law waters of the U.S. protecting wetlands. It largely has to do with private land, but do you think that this will have any effect on the sorts of wetlands you're discussing here? You know, the work that we're going to be uh, doing here is on public ground, and um, what we're trying to do is create places for more water, right, to do its job for people and for wildlife. And so, uh, no, there's, there's not a connection there. As much as people love public lands, especially in Colorado, there's a lot of disagreement over how those lands should be used and managed. The BLM, under your leadership, has proposed a new rule to elevate conservation and restoration, alongside other uses like grazing and extractive industry. What's your argument there with this rule? Uh, I think everybody can agree that our job as land managers should be to ensure that we manage for landscape health. We ensure that we can leave these lands as good or better off than we found them to the future. And that's what this rule is going to enable us to do. We're going to carry on our multiple use mission because A, it's the right thing to do for the American people, uh, and B, it also happens to be the law. And as part of that multiple use mission, conservation and focusing on restoration uh, will enable us to ensure that we get to do those multiple uses into the future. Because if we don't have a healthy landscape, we're not going to be able to do that, that work. You, you said, prefacing that, everyone agrees uh, that landscape health is a priority. But, you know, rules like this tend to be challenged in Congress and the courts. Representative John Curtis of Utah has introduced a bill to do just that, to challenge this proposal. He has two Colorado Republicans, Lauren Boebert and Doug Labmore, as co-sponsors, Given the importance of other uses on public lands and the pushback already from some of those industries, which are strong in Colorado, uh, how does the agency propose navigating, you know, the balance you want to strike? Yeah, I think, again, um, managing for healthy wildlife habitat, managing for clean water uh, is something that the American people want um, their land management agencies to do. We all, everybody wants wildlife on the landscape. Everybody wants clean water. And so what I would urge folks to do is to uh, dig in, go to our website. You can Google BLM and public lands rule, and that's going to give your listeners 
a bunch of information about what the rule is and more importantly, what the rule isn't. And I want to make sure that um, folks are armed with um, information about what we're trying to do. Well, that's interesting. What isn't it? In other words, is there maybe a misconception that you're fighting? Um, I, again, I, I think people are, uh, I would ask people to read uh, what's there rather than second guess what isn't there. And I know that sounds a little cryptic, but from what I'm hearing, I think people are um, seeing things in this rule that we are not attempting to do. Um, what we are attempting to do is to ensure that in the future, we're going to be able to deliver on our multiple use mandate. We're going to be able to ensure that ranchers will have healthy lands upon which to graze, uh, that we deliver wildlife habitat for hunters and fishermen and women. And all this rule does is give us the tools to ensure we do that. We are not making one use more dominant than the other. We're just making our multiple uses equal to each other, including conservation. In the face of climate change, I wonder if at least part of your approach with a policy like this is to usher in an end or a sunsetting of fossil fuel exploration on BLM lands. Uh, if one looks at the contribution of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, that is fundamentally at odds with the sorts of sustainability that you are advocating for. Oh, I think the president has been clear uh, that we need to transition to a clean energy future. There's no doubt about it. Um, but we're also implementing the laws that are on the books today, right? We are implementing the Mineral Leasing Act uh, that was written back in the 1920s. We're implementing the Inflation Reduction Act that tells us that if we're going to do renewable energy on public lands, we also have to do some oil and gas leasing. This is what the BLM does, right? I like to say we do all the things. We're going to continue to do all the things. And what we're trying to do is do them in a really balanced and responsible way to ensure that the landscape is healthy for the future. And, you know, the public has a big say in this. We're right in the middle of our public comment period for the public lands rule. And we invite uh, your listeners to tell us what they think. The whole point of a process like this is to take a draft to the public, say, hey, what do you think? Uh, get a bunch of that feedback and make our ideas even better and stronger. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to talk a bit about Grand Junction, Colorado, which was the headquarters for your agency for a time. While you have moved HQ back to Washington, D.C., you said Junction would be the BLM's Western hub um, Tracy, how is that developing? Have you moved additional offices out to Grand Junction? If not, is there a plan to grow the BLM presence there or like regrow it? Uh, yeah, we're, we're still on the path to ensuring that we have a robust national headquarters office in the West uh, in Grand Junction. When the previous administration moved the headquarters West, they scattered it all over the West. Um, and we're bringing a portion of our headquarters anchored in Grand Junction. And I'm happy to tell you that that work is happening apace. The person who is leading our National Conservation Lands and Recreation Program, which is anchored in Grand Junction, just moved his family down from Alaska this past month. And there's, uh, I hope people can go to usajobs.gov because we're hiring and we've got job postings on the street for both Grand Junction and, of course, all over the West. All right, BLM hiring in Grand Junction. You know, the Bureau lost a significant number of career staff around that transition. What are staffing 
levels like? I mean, you, you say you have open positions. Is that is that a function of the the kind of brain trust, brain loss that happened around the move? I think it was. And uh, there's a trickle-down effect. When the headquarters was moved west by the previous administration and hundreds of people left, um, there were hundreds of jobs opening in the headquarter jobs in the west. And many uh, folks at BLM state offices decided to step into those headquarters roles, which of course then you know, play dominoes, then there are vacancies in the state offices. You put that together with a pandemic, and we've got openings that I am trying to solve. But we, I'm happy to tell you that we are progressing in the right direction. Um, Slowly but surely, we are building the BLM to what the BLM deserves and what the American public deserves. No doubt, some of the same labor issues that just about every industry uh, sector is dealing with. Um, Exactly. Have you been to Grand Junction? Do you plan to go soon? I have been to Grand Junction. Our office there is beautiful. Their community is incredible. So are some of the tacos. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and of course, the BLM public lands around that Junction office are unmatched um, a- across the West. When do we expect to see you on the ground in Junction again, do you think? Oh, what a good question. Um, I just uh, recently spent uh, uh, many days in Colorado, but I was yes. going north-south, not east-west. <laughs> starting in North Park and ending in the San Luis Valley. But I do expect to bring uh, the leadership team back to Junction in the fall like we did last year. Tracy, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. I so appreciate your time. Thank you. Tracy Stone Manning directs the Bureau of Land Management. The BLM just announced it'll invest $160 million in what it calls restoration landscapes. Colorado gets $5 million for North Park near Walden and just over $6 million for the San Luis Valley. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The idea of drinking water that used to be waste grossed people out for a long time. But increasingly, it's part of the answer for how we can live in the West as it dries out. One day we are going to see people valuing wastewater as highly as they value any sort of reservoir or other water source. Hear the story of how we can reuse the water we're already using at home on the new episode of Parched, wherever you get podcasts. Supported in part by the Grand Canyon Trust. The mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers, steps down next week. He's term-limited after eight years. KRCC's Abigail Beckman asked him to reflect on the challenges and opportunities that have faced our second-largest city, be it growth, the pandemic, and the political divide. What do you see as your legacy as mayor of Colorado Springs? Well, first of all, I think other people define one's legacy. So um, I just can say the things that I feel best about that I'm proud of having accomplished. Uh, For those uh, folks that were living in Colorado Springs in 2015, and I find that uh, there's an amazing number of people that weren't, the city was in a little bit of a stagnant state. Uh, We really had not made any significant infrastructure investment in a couple of decades. The city engineer estimated we had a $1.5 to $2 billion infrastructure deficit, primarily roads, and stormwater. We had tremendous legal issues surrounding our stormwater system. The voters had done away with a stormwater fee in 2009. We drastically reduced our stormwater spending, and I walked into the office uh, facing lawsuits from the EPA, state of Colorado, and uh, Pueblo, and uh, the lower Arkansas Valley. We also, coming out of the recession, had had 10 years of rather stagnant job growth. We'd only added 30,000 jobs in 
uh, the decade prior to 2015. Sounds like a lot, but when you figure we have to create about 5,500 jobs a year just to take care of the young people in our community graduating from high school and college, it was a situation where we had to have an out-migration of young people uh, because we didn't have enough jobs. And so we look back and uh, we have overcome that uh, infrastructure deficit. And I feel good about the fact I was able to convince the voters that that was something we needed to do. I think political leadership is sometimes convincing uh, voters not, you know, what they ought to want. And in the case of uh, stormwater, that's not something they think about a lot, but we needed to fix that problem. And we've uh, created 50,000 jobs in the last 10 years. So we've uh, a pace that now we have a lot of young people moving to Colorado Springs to take those really good job opportunities we have. The GDP, the gross domestic product of the city, has grown by a third in eight years. It's never grown that much in that short a period of time. So to put that in perspective, it took 143 years to get a $30 billion annual economy. It took eight years to go from 30 to $40 billion. Is there anything that you didn't anticipate coming into office, things that surprised you? How about a worldwide pandemic? Um, you know, I, I like to say we tested, you know, I went to exercises for wildfires, for uh, flash floods, for uh, uh, ransomware attacks. Um, but when uh, worldwide pandemics only come around about every hundred years, it's not something that uh, – you exercise for, and it was a it was a real experience. I, in hindsight, uh, feel very good about the way we handled it, and I give credit to uh, Governor Polis. Uh, he and I talked uh, every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, he um, kind of resisted uh, some of the shutdown mentality that took place in a lot of uh, states across the country. We shut down for a period of time until we could figure out, you know, exactly what we were facing. But we reopened the economy as quickly as you could under the circumstances. And in hindsight, uh, we recovered from the pandemic faster than any major city in America. And ironically enough, and who would have thought this at the time, we benefited in the post-pandemic world because – all these things are, that are being insourced back to the United States as a result of our experience in the pandemic, such as microchips. We don't want to be reliant on the rest of the world for microchips. That is having an enormous benefit for Colorado Springs because we have a history um, as a producer of microchips. And so, you know, we've had three major announcements in the last several months. I think we're going to have a few more where microchip businesses are, are onshoring and coming back to Colorado Springs, and we're returning to our roots as Silicon Mountain. And so while you shepherded the city through the COVID-19 pandemic, there were also social justice protests here and throughout the country. Um, I assume that's not something that you train for as well. Tell me about that. Well, actually, you know, having been district attorney and uh, attorney general, I remember one time I had a thousand protesters outside the sure. attorney general's sure. office when I was there. So it was uh, something that I was aware of. And, and certainly for me, uh, I'd also had, uh, a, you know, a longstanding working relationship with the police. And so I, I knew uh, how to talk to the police, uh, uh, how to organize for uh, dealing with protests, things like that. Uh, I also had tremendous experience. We had one particular, aside from what was going on nationally, we had a, a police officer shooting here, the Devon Bailey uh, shooting. Mm -hmm. And my experience having reviewed hundreds and hundreds of 
you know, uh, police shootings in my career, I think, uh, helped me kind of come to the, some realizations about what was going to happen there. I'll tell you, in hindsight, the first time I watched the tape, I knew uh, that it was a justified shooting from a uh, criminal justice perspective. But I also knew that there would be a lot of uh, uh, protest about it. And I, you know, I talked to the police and I said, our job is to make sure people uh, have the ability to exercise their First Amendment rights, but we protect the citizens uh, from any personal injury and property damage. That's that's our job. We are also very fortunate that while there was an uh, element of the protesters that, frankly, some of them from out of town that I think had some agendas other than just uh, peaceful protest, I was able to meet with uh, leaders of the group. And I, I think for the most part, we had fairly constructive meetings and we were able to avoid significant damage to property and personal injury that occurred in several other large cities. What do you feel like you have um, done or where have you been successful in bridging the political divide that exists here in Colorado Springs? Well, I actually think, interestingly enough, I had pretty broad support across the community by people on all sides of the aisle. I think that the nature of local government, and I've said this for years now, the federal government and unfortunately so many of our state governments, including Colorado at this point in time, the partisanship is so severe that we're not getting a lot of things done, particularly on the federal level in terms of addressing major issues. Local government, the nature of local government, what we do, first of all, we can't borrow money. Uh, you have to actually adhere to a budget and you have to prioritize. Local governments are engaging in public-private partnerships such as the City for Champions projects to get these really you know, great amenities for communities done. Ultimately, you've got to provide public safety. You've got to get the police there on time. You've got to get the uh, trash picked up and things like that. And those aren't things that are really conducive to too big ideological battles. And I think I've focused on delivery of core municipal services, public safety, public works, parks, transportation. And uh, my support has been pretty broad, frankly. I would identify probably my biggest detractors as the far right. Do you think there are lessons or takeaways that Republicans can learn moving forward as they try to pick up seats and uh, stem election losses? As long as Donald Trump is the face of the Republican Party, and I feel this very strongly, the Republican Party will be in the wilderness. Any place where you need to rely on unaffiliated voters, in a place like Colorado, you cannot win. Even in El Paso County, you can't win without unaffiliated voter support. Uh, unaffiliates have no use for Donald Trump. And as long as he is the face of the party, we will not be successful in states or communities where you need a broad base of unaffiliated support. I'm just curious what it is like to lead a city where you grew up and see how things have changed. It's it's a great honor and a great privilege to have been the uh, mayor of my hometown. I have literally, I mean, you can see, hey, people say I grew up with this town. I literally grew up with this city. When I was adopted uh, in 1951, I was born in Denver, adopted when I was three weeks old. Uh, this was a city of uh, 40,000 people. And... Uh, I have fond, fond memories of growing up in Colorado Springs and to have the opportunity at the latter stage of my career to serve eight years as the mayor of this town and I think move it forward has been an incredibly satisfying experience. 
Well, thanks for coming in today. I really enjoyed this. Glad to be here. KRCC's Abigail Beckman speaking with the outgoing Colorado Springs Mayor, John Southers. Yemi Mobilade will be sworn in as the city's next leader Tuesday, which incidentally is the day of the Denver mayoral runoff. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the new episode of My Story So Far. They made me feel loved and like I belonged. Pride on the Western Slope. The latest from the storytelling podcast from CPR, My Story So Far. Everywhere you listen. Swim season has begun at many neighborhood pools, but it's been a struggle to fill lifeguard towers. As CPR's Matt Bloom reports, some front-range cities are training a not-so-new generation of swimmers to fill the gap. This is not Baywatch where we, you know, we're all big and strong. We're like real people. Craig Robinson is sitting in a tall white chair at the edge of a public lap pool in North Glen. It's the start of his shift for the day, and he keeps a watchful eye on the water while drinking a cup of coffee. There's two of us here, so one of us is checking all the chemicals and the temperature and the pumps and all that, and I'm out watching the swimmers. Robinson looks less like David Hasselhoff and more like your grandpa. He's 69 with gold-rimmed glasses, a fully white head of hair, and a dry sense of humor. Stop running. (laughs) Robinson, a retired army colonel and physician assistant, picked up swimming as a hobby a few years ago. But after his North Glen pool reopened following the COVID-19 pandemic, he and a few other swimmers noticed his rec center had limited hours because there weren't enough lifeguards. I know on at least one occasion, uh, we all had to get out and sit on the bench while the one and only lifeguard had to go to the bathroom. There wasn't any coverage. So it, it, it was pretty acute. Like, we get it. You know, this is a problem. Robinson and his friends decided to apply for the open lifeguard jobs themselves. The group even gave themselves a nickname, the Immortals, after the Marvel Eternals movie. And it stuck. We're still swimming. Despite being old, one of us has a pacemaker and has already had a bypass surgery. But he can do all the swim that's required. The Immortals' former careers vary. Some are retired sales and customer service professionals. And there's even a former minister. They all make standout lifeguards, says Rich Kondo, a swimmer who's just emerging from a workout in the lap pool. These people get up at 4.30 in the morning. They have to come here and open the facility at around 4.50. So that, that's a level of commitment uh, and drive to, to want to help the community. The minimum age to be a lifeguard in Colorado is 15, but there's no max. The youngest member of the Immortals is 65. All six of the seniors went through the standard guard training for free thanks to a state grant program. They also passed a series of physically challenging drills to practice rescuing a human from the water. Kondo says he feels perfectly safe with them on duty. I I have every confidence that uh, these people, irregardless of age, are all capable and qualified to come to my rescue, uh, God forbid, if I have a problem in the water. With the extra help from the Immortals, the city says it should be able to safely operate all of its outdoor pools this summer. All right, there's one. For Craig Robinson, there are a few downsides to the job. There are some physically challenging tasks, like moving long, heavy lane lines. See how it's pretty easy to get pulled in? Quite a bit of drag on these things. Tear the flesh off your hand if you're not careful. The pay isn't bad, $17 an hour. 
but he only works seven hours a week. It's worth it to see the community come out and safely enjoy the water, he says, which may otherwise be unavailable. Today, there's a large water aerobics class scheduled. One, left, eight, seven, six, five. Robinson says he's proud to fill a community need, and he thinks more retirees should consider it. Yeah, there are limitations, but everybody has limitations. If you're 30, you have limitations. You have different limitations when you're 60 and 70, but you still have something to offer. You could be a barista, a chef, a landscaper. Just find something that gets you going, Robinson says. He, for one, is happy ending his day with a dip. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News, North Glen. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.